1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan.
0: Cass, I am very excited that today we get to continue our conversation with Dr. Rosie Wayne of the National Museums Scotland about Scottish dress history. Earlier this week, she joined us to detail how dress has historically figured into the political landscape of Scotland and in turn, the British Empire. And we also discussed the history of tartans, the boldly patterned textile, which has now become synonymous in the popular imagination as a veritable emblem of Scottishness.
1: Yeah, and one of the many things that we learned from the episode earlier this week was that this term plaid that many of us use interchangeably now with tartan is technically incorrect. Plaid actually refers to a specific garment, whereas tartan is the woven motif of the textile itself. So you know, dress listeners, we love a good bit of fashion etymology on Dressed.
0: We do. It's like my favorite thing. I know. Um, <laughs> and how the terminology of fashion actually evolves over time. The evolution of the meaning of dress is really at the core of what we do here on the show. And our episodes this week are such fantastic illustrations of just that. While many of us may categorize tartans as quote-unquote traditional textiles, one of the main themes that Rosie and I chatted about was the assignment and evolution of meanings associated with the most Scottish of textiles.
1: I, for one, cannot wait to learn more. Dr. Wayne, welcome back to Dressed. One of the sections that I love the most in your book was
0: actually the chapter, which is entitled Designing and Trading Tartan in Georgian Britain, There's all of this correspondence that you detail in that chapter that gives us a glimpse into the ever-evolving nature of tartan and the relationship between the manufacturer and the consumer. Could you tell us a little bit more about that relationship? Because it seems that the motifs themselves or, or the colorways and the patterns were never perhaps as static as a lot of us assume them to be. There was a ton of collaboration between the clients and the makers. Yes, so that chapter
2: that you mentioned was an absolute joy to write because it it drew on our archive of correspondence from the firm, Messrs Wilson of Banner burn that at that time, the largest tartan manufacturers in Scotland. We were very lucky to have so many letters and, and designs That survive from this period in our collection, because it creates a a wonderful resource on which to draw. And part of my job at the museum has been to catalogue this and so that other people can use it and do their own research on. So for anyone who wants to look at the Messrs. Wilson of Bannerburn Archive at National Museum Scotland, it is now very accessible and you could do your own research on this topic. Um, But to go back to your question, the system of creating a tartan in this period is is so much more fluid, I think, than most people realise. When it comes down to it, the weavers themselves had the ultimate authority on how a fabric was going to look, how a pattern was going to look. But there was a lot more collaboration between them and their customers than I th- think people realise, and that's borne out in many of the letters that we have in the archive. So. One of my favourite things in this this whole research journey has been searching out those letters in the archive and particularly the drawings in the archives that some of the customers sent, where they would be very exacting on what they wanted. In particular, there's one watercolour which was submitted by a customer in 1812, which he, he wanted his own tartan for his servants to wear as livery. Uh, he'd just be- become a member of the Highland Society of London. He'd just purchased a Highland estate and I think wanted a tartan to sort of cement this new identity that he created for himself. He was a Scot by birth, but he wasn't a Highlander. So I think this idea of creating a family tartan was very important to him. And the process between him and Wilson to Bannetburn of getting this tartan done was so complex. Like he would send in multiple letters talking about the colors he wanted the arrangements of the threads in the weave and then also a beautiful watercolor drawing of the grid and how he wanted the different um, colors to interact in the grid and I don't know if he ever got his perfect heart out of that because we don't have the final letters from the end of the transaction but he was not particularly happy (laughs) because Wilson's could never get it right yeah I think they must have I think the last count, they'd woven three different lengths of this tartan for him, and he wasn't happy with any of them. So I think this idea that the manufacturers are in complete control and dictate exactly what people wanted from tartan at the time just isn't sustainable when you look at the actual evidence in, in the archive. So that period from about 1780 through to about 1825 is a period of real experimentation in tartan it's when you have sets so set is um another word for pattern i should say um, so you have different sets appearing almost like, constantly with each new season uh, when people are, are ordering their fabrics to, to stock in their shops and you have tartans appearing one one month under one name and then appearing a different month under another name, um, maybe minutely changed with a couple of different threads thrown in. But the the weavers were very reactive to cultural changes, so they would be interested in naming patterns not only after families, but also after, you know, events. So patriotic events, like there was a George IV tartan, there was a Regent tartan, there was a Wellington tartan, Walter Scott tartan. So they were really clued in, I think, to to what customers were interested in. But they were also receptive to ideas from customers as to what the next stage of tartan design should be. And the direction seemed to be from the consumers that they wanted tartans more individual to their families and to their names. And that's kind of how clan tartans really developed in that organic manufacturing way
0: the kind of flip side of that coin? And maybe this is more of a contemporary concept, but what is a public tartan? So um, what you might call a public tartan are
2: are sets which are considered to be accessible to anyone. So an example of that would be the Royal Stuart, which is probably the most popular tartan in the world. Um, I say that from a historical point of view as well as a contemporary one. So in in our museum collection, so many of the garments we have are Royal Stuart because it's it's considered to be a pattern that anyone can wear because it doesn't have a specific family orientation to it other than the Royal House of Stuart. So it emerged in the early 19th century as a very popular fashion tartan and so you'd see it more often used in women's cloaks and plaids, um, potentially men's suits every now and again, but it, it didn't it wouldn't be worn in the same sort of context as say clan tartans would have been worn. Mm-hmm. So just to say nowadays you can anyone can design a tartan. So in this way, I always think of tartan as being a cloth of identity, particularly in the modern contemporary sense, because people can can really put themselves into the design of a tartan and have it publicly registered by the Scottish Register of Tartans, which was set up in 2009. And that design then becomes part of the curated history of the nation. So it's a very, yeah, it's a very interesting time in tartan design right now.
0: Yeah. And in one way, that sort of codification post-2009 is a tradition, but at the same time, the other side of that is that it, remains also this living breathing history in and of itself it's 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 allowed to morph and it's allowed to change but they're still gonna like assign it its own thing right yeah like so the scottish register of tartans
2: i think was a good innovation in the history of tartan design so prior to uh 2009 there was a lot of complaint In the industry about there being not really a lot of regulation or standardization of quality uh, when it came to what constituted a real tartan. Mm -hmm. Um, The setting up of the Scottish Register of Tartans, with that came the codification of the types of tartans that would be made. So it's a register not only of tartans that have been created since 2009, but all sort of historic tartans as well that are known. Um, So those historic tartans They'll have categories that say like fashion or clan or family, whereas after 2009, you have more personal tartan, fashion tartan, business tartan. So yeah, it, it's, it's the new clan tartan system
0: in a lot of ways. Well, so far, we have been really dwelling on the quote unquote stuff or textiles of Highland dress. I'm hoping now that we could shift a little bit and talk about the ways in which these tartans were employed. What are some of the most common garments or silhouettes that are unique to Highland dress? So the most iconic object or garment would be the
2: kilt. I think that is probably what most people think of when you say the term Highland dress. So the kilt, the origin of the kilt was the belted plaid. So the belted plaid would be composed of two lengths of fabric, which would be joined selvage to selvage and then wrapped around the body and belted in different ways. Around the early 1700s, you have a movement towards the tailored kilt. So this is the creation of a kilt, still using one long piece of fabric, but pleating it and stitching it. Uh, in place so you wouldn't have to have a belt to create those folds Um, that creation of the tailored kilt has has created an icon of highland dress which is still a huge part so this is why this is what I'm talking about when I say living tradition like that is something that has its origins in the early 18th century and through you know through just small changes like Rather than having a belt, you use a needle and thread to create the pleats that you want. it It, it has become a staple of 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 Highland dress culture, and it will I don't see that changing <laughs> anytime soon. So when it comes to the other sort of iconic sort of silhouettes of of Highland dress, the kilt would be up there. As, as the main garment that I would say uh, sort of defines Highland dress in the popular imagination. If you're thinking about Highland dress in the sort of 20th century sense, the Prince Charlie jacket and the lace jabot and all those sort of things you'd see on the shortbread biscuit tin kind of style of Highland dress. <laughs> um, and yet now it's changing again. That's gone out of fashion and now we have tweed like tweed jackets and waistcoats are now the the thing. So I don't know what's going to be next, but I would say for the last sort of 20 to 30 years, tweed has been on the the rise. And now a tweed jacket is the iconic object that goes with your kilt.
0: Ah, that's fascinating. Well, I'm hoping we can touch back just a little bit to what you just referenced, which was the little short tailored jackets that were in the tartans that were realized in the tartans specifically because that bold nature of the tartans allows for some really interesting tailoring opportunities. I'm hoping that you might talk about this a little bit in terms of some examples of expert tailoring and the innovations and cutting as evidenced in your collection. I, I loved, these were some of my favorite images in the book. Well, they were some
2: of my favorite to, to pick. <laughs> there were so many. So um, yeah, so what, you, what you're referring to specifically are the jackets that became a staple of Highland dress during the late 18th, early 19th century. It became very common to wear a tartan jacket with your kilt. Usually, usually but not exclusively made out of the same tartan. This sort of style came around at the same time as an innovation in menswear tailoring for more form-fitting jackets in particular. And whereas a tartan jacket previously um, might have been made out of maybe two panels at the back where the tartan doesn't really have to match or, or lay interestingly against each other. By the late 18th, early 19th century, you have a style of jacket, which is made out of multiple panels, where with when you have a patterned fabric to work with, you kind of have to invest in using that pattern interestingly along where the seams are going to join. And when it comes to a gridded pattern like tartan, that creates quite chaotic, kaleidoscopic, moments in these dresses particularly on the backs and along the um uh, the center front of a jacket where you know the buttons meet and yeah in in our collection we have quite a rich collection of particularly early 19th century jackets and highland dress outfits where each jacket is is just a a different interpretation of how you would create this kaleidoscopic effect uh, with a different set. What I find most interesting is when you have multiple tartan jackets, and each one has been made out of the same tartan, but a different tailor using that pattern has created something completely different on how that grid meets along the seams. And I think it shows the sort of unexpected malleability of tartan—how um, it's not that that standard strict grid. Like you can turn that grid. To your advantage, uh, and make it really eye-popping, like a magic eye poster.
0: And I think I think your use of that term kaleidoscopic is perfect because sometimes the way that the textiles and and the patterning has been mitered together creates almost like sunburst patterns on the backs of some of these jackets. It's spectacular. And
2: what's even better, I think, is. If you have a real quality jacket, which we have quite a few of them in the collection, but the real quality ones, the tartan is made not only of wool, but also of silk. So the lighter stripes, um, like the white or the yellows usually, will be executed in the silk. So you have this kaleidoscope, not only of the pattern joining on the back, but also that how the light will hit the fibres in different ways can cause that, that white or yellow silk to really pop you can only imagine how it would have looked like under candlelight or something. Like it's, it's really beautiful. Um, And if you have an entire suit made out of the same pattern or all of the different ways that the tartan interacts around the body, it's almost like looking at scaffolding encasing Mm -hmm. a body in the way that it just like wraps around. Um, Yeah. I I kind of lament the fact that that is no longer a fashionable way to wear (laughs) Tartan in Highland Dress, because I think it's it's beautiful.
0: The term resplendent popped yes. into my brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, most of the garments in the book are menswear, but there are some rather fascinating examples of women's wear as well. Could you tell us a little bit about those and also how, if at all, did women's relationship to wearing tartans differ from that of men? Well, I will say
2: Unfortunately, in the collection at National Museum of Scotland, we don't have a lot of women's Highland wear. And that is, I think, down to a few different factors. One of them, probably the main one being that women's relationship to Highland dress is a lot more subtle and uh, hard to pin down than the male relationship to Highland dress. Like, Because men's Highland dress has all of these, these rules these regulations all these different types of garments that you can put together to create your suit um, because in effect it is based on the idea that it's a suit and so has multiple components whereas um, with women's take on highland dress it's usually more a sash or a what used to be called an arrasade, which is a form of tartan or checked or barred plaid that would be wrapped around the body, much in the same way as a belted plaid would be for a man. And we do have several examples of those in the collection, which they kind of fell out of favor by the early 19th century, but were were very popular, particularly for more rural Highland women of like the lower class, because it would double as a blanketing fabric so it could be used not only to wrap around the body as like a very large, warm shawl, but also be double as a bed cover at home. So I think that speaks to the, the kind of utility of, of women's Highland dress in this era. But that's kind of different from the, the more ceremonial, formalised style of Highland dress that my book largely talks about. So we do have one extremely interesting <laughs> example in the collection.
0: I'm so glad you're gonna bring this up because I have to admit, this dress is so wild and wacky. I actually made a video of it and it sent it to my fashion designer friend, and I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) It is. I'm just um I've
2: got my book here and I just want to describe
0: it properly.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Because it is crazy. This particular garment is I've never seen anything like it, to be honest. I've seen versions of it, say, in fashion prints and uh, and paintings of the era, perhaps, but an actual garment, a surviving garment that's, that's this crazy is, is kind of hard to come by. So it is a silk tartan dress dating from, we think, around 1832. And it was part of a wedding trousseau for a woman called Sarah Justina Davidson of Tullock. It was part of her trousseau for when she married Ewan Macpherson of Clooney, who's the 14th chief of Clan Macpherson. And it is a pure 1830s romanticism. Like, it's got so much about it that it really speaks to that crazy out-of-proportion style of dresses that they had in the 1830s. So the tartan is the uh, Macpherson dress tartan made out of silk. Um, So it's composed of what we uh, kind of call Christmas colours when we were conserving and photographing it uh, for the book. So it's brilliant red, green, yellow, white, and it's quite faded now, but also like a light blue. Um, uh, So that's the basis of it. But then you also have these massive sleeves, which um, are almost like bubbles on the side. And then at the bottom, it's got this bell shaped skirt with a padded hem which is creates this beautiful conical shape with this weighted bottom and the bottom has these sprays of uh, what we think of as as holly uh around the edges which um interestingly is the the one of the clan badges the clan plant badges of sarah justina davidson's clan the davidsons as well as the mcpherson's um so it's this interesting mishmash of popular styles of the period as well as this particular Highland style of the period of incorporating clan tartans and emblems into your dress. And I think it's probably one of the few surviving garments uh, in the museum collection at any rate that really captures a woman's interpretation on this revivalist Highland style of clothing Um, because it's kind of different to like a a silk tartan dress that you might find in a, in a different museum that's, that's more just that usual Regency shape, maybe, made out of tartan. I think they've got one at the um, Fashion Institute Technology in New York uh, that's from the 1810s. And that's a gorgeous dress, but it just holds nothing to this one in its
0: absurdity. It's completely out of control. And uh, address listeners, if you all allow, we will certainly post an image of that on our Instagram and maybe break it down a little bit further for you. Yeah, definitely. And also if,
2: um, shouldn't, I was about to say you can see a 360 of it, but we didn't do a 360 degree spin
0: of that one. Oh, (laughs) Ah, shucks, all good. Okay, so in the popular imagination, I think a lot of us, think of tartans as a traditional fabric today. We have busted that myth a little bit here and there. But in the 18th century when it was, you know, it was having its ebbs and and flows of fashionableness and in the 19th century as well, this fad for tartan extended overseas. Would you tell us a little bit about that, tartan as a fashion export? Yeah, so
2: the main evidence we have for that, in our collection, is from the Wilsons of Barnett Burn archive. So, they, being one of the largest tartan producers in Scotland at the time, had a strong sort of national market as well as an international market. And we have quite a few letters in the collection which um, show tartan being exported abroad. Uh, to New York is a good example. We have a, a merchant in New York, David Haddon who's ordering in his tartans for the winter season well in advance and telling Wilsons of burn the patterns which have been successful in his his shop and those which haven't, which again kind of plays into this idea of it's, it's not people desperate for clan tartans, it's people desperate for nice-looking tartans which happen to have clan names. So at that particular letter, he's talking about how red-based tartans are, are not in style with his customers because they're prohibitively expensive uh, whereas green based tartans are like all the rage uh, in new york in 1823 I believe that was we also have letters uh from people trying to export tartan to brazil for tartan capes and cloaks so for a time, Wilsons and Bonnet Burn um, actually had a biz, sort of high, side hustle, we might call it, of of making tartan cloaks up to order and then sending them out. Um, so they weren't just a weaver; they were also, to a certain extent, a outfitter, like a clothier. They also had um, networks with, say, bonnet makers as well. So we have orders for bonnets that were going out to Halifax. Um, <laughs> and we also, in our collection, have one example of a letter which is for tartan to be exported to the southern states in America for wearing as what we believe to be slave clothing. So for people um, to be wearing as part of their yearly allocation of of cloth from the plantation owner.
0: I'm so curious about this. I actually texted my friend Cheney McKnight, who knows quite a lot about this um, particular topic of, of textiles that were worn by the enslaved populations within the United States. And I was like, do you know about this? And she texted me back and she was like, I know just a tiny little bit, but I'd love to learn more. So I'm I'm curious, do we know much about how these particular tartans, especially if they're being commissioned, were going to be worn? Were they being worn as livery by enslaved persons working on the estate? How much do we know about that? Well, this particular letter in our
2: collection seems to be pointing towards tartans, which are actually cheap and are are not going to be designed per se for that specific purpose, but more off the peg tartans, which will be of the cheapest quality. So the transaction in particular is through um, it's through a third party seller who. Um, is sort of conveying the tartans on Wilson's behalf to a different person uh, in Charleston. And there's been a few letters, it seems, gone back and forth over this transaction where Wilsons have sent examples of the sort of fabrics that they do. And the agent has responded and said, no, my customer says that he doesn't want these because they're, they're too bright, they're too expensive. And what, you know, he wants dark tartans, your cheapest, darkest tartans. So that to me indicates these are fabrics which are more for field hands. Mm-hmm. Um, there's work done by Linda Baumgarten of Colonial Williamsburg uh, where she talks about the types of uh, fabrics which would be allocated to enslaved peoples, which includes checks and plaids from Scotland. So I think. That is the kind of fabrics that they're talking about in that specific letter. However, there are examples of other letters, not in our collection, um, which talk about more tartans, potentially for more livery kind of applications. So one of the earliest tartans, which can sort of be traced through different naming conventions, uh, the kid, kid tartan which became the caledonia and mcpherson later on in the 19th century one of the earliest mentions of that is from a letter in the 1790s for it to be used potentially as livery for slaves in i believe it's jamaica and there's it's one of those things where this letter has done the rounds a bit and the the story the actual story and what that application would have been of that cloth I think has got lost through the replication of this this footnote through time so tracking down exactly what was meant in that original document is quite difficult without access to that original document and unfortunately nobody has referenced exactly which collection it's in
0: oh no
2: if I had to hazard a guess it would probably be in John Telford Dunbar's collection of letters which is held by oh, National Library of Scotland.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and this is why citations are very important to people like us, because a lot of times you want to actually go back and look at it yourself, right? And and I use footnotes and other scholars work like that all the time. It's not necessarily to look for what they had to say about it and, and corroborate it, but more is like, oh, I want to see that myself and see if I see something different as well, or if I can add on to their scholarship and their ideas. So, cite your sources, friends, <laughs> for sure. And I think
2: talking in my particular world of tartan that I am in, it's a it's a discipline which is plagued by uh, the leftovers of particularly 19th and early 20th century scholars who've written wonderful things don't footnote anything. Um, So yeah, that's part of the sort of mysticism of of, of Tartan, of of trying to track down its sources. It's really hard when the people who initially wrote the histories didn't do a great job of citing
0: their sources. Mm -hmm. I have one last question for you, because you've been very generous with your time today. This is really kind of, I guess, a broader question that it was applicable historically and remains so today. Who can and should wear tartans and is Highland style off-limit to non-Scots? So the answer to this question varies
2: depending on who you speak to because it's very much (laughs) it's very much a matter of opinion. I am of the opinion that Tartan should be open to anybody. I think there probably was a period when to wear tartan when you were not Scottish was a faux pas. But in in the 21st century, I don't think that's realistic anymore. And I think for, the, for tartan to survive and thrive, uh, it needs to be open to everybody. And that's one of the great innovations when it comes to tartan design. You have so many people designing their own tartans now for their own reasons. Uh, it's not a cloth of identity for nothing. I think when it comes to Highland dress specifically, I think that's a bit harder. Um, I think if you're not Scottish or have no connection to Scotland whatsoever, however distant, to wear Highland dress, I think can be seen as a form of cultural appropriation. I think we should be sensitive to that. But again, I also think that, what what is a connection to Scotland? How do you define that? So if it's a dress that you want to wear, as long as you wear it sensitively and, and with good thoughts, <laughs> <laughs> feelings, mm-hmm. um, then, then yeah, I feel like you should be able to at least experiment with it.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, and dress listeners, I'm going to tease an upcoming episode. I recently spoke to Howie Nicholsby of 21st Century Kilts, and he's going to talk about uh, the difference between his, he's a fourth generation kilt maker, and his family tradition of making kilts, and then also his business, which is called 21st Century Kilts, which is pulling the kilt into contemporary. I would argue fashion. Oh, for sure! I absolutely love Howie Nickleby's skills. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rosie, if people would like to learn more about your work or order the book, where can our listeners find you? Well, uh, you can find out
2: more about me on National Museum Scotland website. I'm also very active on Twitter, Wayne. You can purchase the book through the museum uh, gift shop. But it is also available globally through most booksellers like Amazon.
0: Great. Thank you so much. This was fascinating. I was a neophyte when it came to Tartans and Highland Dress, but uh, now I have just that much more knowledge and just that much more education, and I really enjoyed every second of it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to me.
1: Rosie, thank you so much for joining us on Dress This Week. I'm certain we have just made many a listener happy as this subject has been a much requested one over the years. And listeners, if any of you are lovers of Scottish dress and have images of your contemporary ensembles you would like to share, we would love to see them. And perhaps, April, we could even share a few on our stories, with permission, of course. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, dress listeners, I think that does it for us this week. May you consider adding a touch of tartan to your ensemble next time you get dressed.
0: Remember, we do love hearing from you, so if you'd like to write to us, you can do so via email at dress at iheartmedia.com. Or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. Also, if you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we do so appreciate
1: it. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week.